already fully on notice that any text message at any time of mine can be screenshotted and tweeted by Paul saying. It's like thing number one, two, three, or four. And I've been babbling for a little bit. I don't mean to be as sarcastic about it, but... Chipotle now has queso, blah, 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 blah. If that's where we're going with this. Wait for it. It's one of Paul Singh's favorite phrases. Well, that's the 99 kids will do to you. <laughs> I'm here for you, man. I'm here for you. That's amazing. I had like, no idea. That's awesome. This is how we do it, baby. Nobody else seems to care. The workload just keeps on coming. Hey guys, welcome back to Results Junkies podcast. We've got WeWork and the Sam Bankman Freed verdict on the radar. We've got tenants renegotiating leases with their landlords based on current economic conditions. And I won't say that you and I got into it on Twitter about about your proclivities for using DoorDash New Breeds, but we did have a pretty interesting discussion and it sounds like we might dig into it a little bit more on the show today. Mr. Singh... I know how things are going at your house, but would you care to expand on how things are going at your house? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, we're, uh, the Singh household is uh, a bit of a cesspool at the moment. Uh, turns out Dana and the baby tested positive for COVID at home, I guess. And then me and the rest of the kids have not, but I don't know. So anyway, big, lots of inconvenience, lots of uncomfortable people in the house and nobody else seems to care. The workload just keeps on coming. <laughs> Amazing how that is. What is it? The the constants in life are death, taxes, and work, I guess. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. All good. You know, we're hanging in there. You know, just a couple fewer laughs in our house this week, but <laughs> we're gonna fight our way through it. <laughs> well and I hope that it stopped at this point. You know, I've had some other folks who've gotten COVID recently and not everybody in the household, you know, tested positive or and or even had symptoms. So hopefully it'll it'll stop with the two that are already feeling under the weather. Hopefully Dana and sorry, is it Henry that has it now or why? Uh no gr- uh Grant. Baby Grant's got it. I, I sorry, there's like seventeen, so it's hard I to got, keep track of. I got a lot of kids, yeah, man. I'm just like I, it's like thing number one, two, three, or four. It's kinda how we right. refer to them now. Yeah, no, I think we're on the upswing now. I mean, we're fine today was the finally the first day where, you know, Dana was like, I feel better than yesterday or less worse than yesterday. So hopefully we're on the upswing mm. there and and hopefully it also remains true that me and three of the other kids are going to just stay smooth coasting all the way through. So fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. We will cross our fingers for that. All right. So let's, let's dig into, let's dig into WeWork. And, and I think that, I mean, look, you know, I mean, there are going to be plenty of people with opinions on both of these topics, you know, FTX and WeWork and, you know, Sam Bankman frieds you know, conviction this week, trying to stay away from that piece of it. And then maybe any controversial feelings that folks might have about the CEO of, of WeWork. I think, you know, just to frame things up, WeWork declared for bankruptcy. WeWork was a, you know, very widespread real estate play in terms of the virtual office environment, you know, decentralized workforce. They played an incredibly large role in, in that development. FTX was, uh, I mean, I don't know the best way to describe them. I guess cryptocurrency exchange is the best way to describe them, but they were in so many other things related yeah. to crypto, but we'll call them an exchange for for lack of a better term. Um, and their CEO was indicted, or was convicted, sorry, on a number of fraud charges. And I guess, you know, at a high level, let's take them one at a time and then feel free to talk collectively about it. But I guess from, from a WeWork standpoint, when you think about the stuff they were trying to tackle, you know, given where we stand with the economic climate where it is now, do you think that the failure of WeWork changes the push towards a more decentralized workforce in any sort of a meaningful way? No, no. I will say that's not the question I thought you were going to ask. But yeah, off the cuff, I would say, no, I don't. If the question is that, you know, is is WeWork's 
challenges or problems going to affect remote work or anything like that? I don't, I don't think so. But is that really what you're asking though? What did you think I was going to ask? I, I thought you were going to go with the angle of like, you know, does this stop, does this slow down venture investments or new investments into that, into certain spaces and stuff like that? But yeah, I definitely, I definitely want to ask that. I, but let's talk specifically. I, I am curious about given where we stand right now from an economic standpoint, you know, this obviously puts a tremendous amount of pressure. We talked about San Francisco and, and all the, you know, the pressure on real estate pricing there. I, I could certainly see a play where somebody tries to like buy WeWork cheaply and continue to run the business. But it's a really challenging economic time to, because you were just talking about before we got a pre-show about a lot of companies that you know that are saying like, hey, I'm not sure how I'm going to raise money right now. So I don't know how, what, what the risk tolerance level might be for folks. Well, and maybe I'm not firing on all cylinders today, but I would say that like, okay, first off, I'm, I might be the minority here, but I really don't know anybody that actually uses WeWork. Not to say that people don't, don't but yeah. I, I yeah, don't right. know it. So, you know, WeWork's challenges, if they, you know, let's say they don't emerge from bankruptcy. Well, actually, let's actually, let's talk about this. So if they emerge from bankruptcy, they will mm -hmm. have shed off the worst parts of their debt and hopefully come out the other side a little bit more solvent, a little bit more streamlined and definitely not going to be a $50 billion company ever again, but you know, at least they right. can kind of keep running. If they don't come out the other side of the, the bankruptcy, I would think they're pretty asset light. So the, the biggest losers, if they don't come out of bankruptcy, are going to be the leaseholders. <laughs> like, mm. what, what are you going to do? Sell, sell a couple chairs in the office and hope you can make up your, you know, the remaining six years on the lease or whatever it is. I, it's, I don't mean to be as sarcastic about it, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think this affects anybody I know in the sense that like we were going under doesn't actually change my opinion on the validity or the viability of remote work. If that's where we're going with this, I and now the the then the next question that are related to that might be like, does does this cause less dollars to go in? Yeah, but I don't think I don't think the bankruptcy of WeWork has caused investors to slow down their investment into more co working spaces. That happened a long time ago, <laughs> for sure, <laughs> so, for sure. But let me let me pause there. That does that answer your question, or at least tell you where I stand on it? It does, and I think let's transition to the question that you thought I was going to ask. And I'll preface this by saying that you know when we talk about these sorts of companies, mm. I don't even know that I know uh, off the top of my head. I certainly know who the biggest investors were in you know in a company like you know a company like WeWork. So you know they raised, I mean, tens of billions. I mean, it was, it was, a def lot. It was definitely a big number. Yeah, and SoftBank was a big part of that, but but. Clearly, they weren't all of it. And I mean, and I know WeWork had some investors that were more like real estate, if you will. But to something that you've said about, you know, people are looking at their entire portfolio. I guess when you see big failures like this, where, where a WeWork or potentially FTX were sort of like the leading growth part of maybe an investment that you had, you know, do, do these big failures cause people to be less likely to want to put up risk capital right now in the current economic environment? That. I think it has two sides to that question, I think. I think that limited partners that put money into the investors that ultimately went on to lose money on WeWork, it will absolutely slow down that, you know, any future commitments. I mean, that LPGP relationship is trust. There's so much trust that, that yeah, is, really is there. And, and yeah, you know, when, when times are really good and everybody's printing cash, you know, you can kind of look past the trust and you just sort of high five each other and have a good time, I guess. But, but then when this happens, you know, all that relationship, all that relationship goes out the window and it, and it comes back to trust. And I think, 
from what I've seen on the LP side, the underbelly or whatever you want to call it is, there's a lot more scrutiny from LPs now in terms of how GPs are making decisions, how diligence is being done, what protections are in place, you know, in terms of governance, corporate governance and, and, and financial governance and all that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, LPs are at least the LPs that I've talked to and, and, and you know, been part of listening to uh, in the pitches lately have been very, very hesitant to invest in anything that was remotely related to public failures like this. So, yeah, so that, so I think that then takes it to the next level, which is that, that sentiment eventually does, you know, come through the GP side of things. So, you know, if, if you're the unfortunate, it has to, it has yeah. to absolutely like, you know, unfortunately, like, and again, I'm, I'm probably not as articulate as I should be today, but here's the thing, like LPs, may, even if LPs don't demand explicit control of a GP, you know, in terms of like what they can and can't do or whatever, I would bet you that any subsequent investment from an LP into a GP likely now has prohibitions on what you can invest in. Like they probably don't want any more exposure to something like a WeWork ever again. It's a tough thing. To, it's, a t- it's a tough thing to frame around, though, just because I like you know we when you say, and I don't disagree with you. They don't want anything like WeWork again. But what is that? What are we specifically restricting? against i'm in that situation that that would prevent this okay so here's what i've heard from my little subset of of gps yeah okay most lps it's very hard so there's a tension here between lps and gps if an lp gets too wants to put too many springs on uh, strings on the relationship they they run the risk of potentially losing that relationship with the gp on the flip side if the gp pushes too hard they also potentially lose that relationship with lp so it's this kind of like standoff where Mm -hmm. What they're really doing is, is like quietly negotiating against each other, but neither side is being fully truthful about what they're really optimizing for. So LPs are commonly known for asset allocation rules. So when they invest in GP number one versus GP number two, one of the things that may be in those LP closing documents is, is, hey, we understand that your thesis is X, Y, and Z, and any deviation from that will require, you know, some sort of LP approval because right. we've also invested in GP number two all the way in that other industry or whatever. And they've got this other allocation. So as a LP, we just don't want two of our different funds get, you know, over investing us accidentally in the same asset class. So that is a very common, right. common mm-hmm. LP request. One of the things mm-hmm. I'm hearing more and more though is, is that now there's an additional request that if anecdotally, it used to be that like, if you invested more than off the top of my head, I'd have to go look back at my fund documents, but used to be that like if you invested more than like 25% of the fund in one company you might need LP approval to do right. that. Now That's I think I've seen that very typically, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that number drop drastically. In, in one case I heard a 100 million dollar fund drop down to a 5% vote. So in other words, if they wanted to write a follow-on check of 5 million or 5% of the fund, it would require LP approval before before that could be done. That was not there. It's I mean, I've, at least in my limited experience, I just, I never really saw that clause on such a small check. I mean, I, I know that clause existed like with big, big, like multi-hundred million dollar LPs, billion dollar right. LPs and stuff like that. But it's sort of, basically what's happening now is these micro funds, I guess even that definition is different now. A lot of the, you know, 
governance provisions that LPs and GPs had against each other, you know, 10 years ago that were limited to the big funds are now trickling down to the little funds. Again, small subset, but just the people I'm talking to, some of the GPs I've talked to have kind of like quietly floated the idea of like, maybe it's time for a career change. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, like, it's the rules have changed now. It used to be, I, I don't know if you remember this. I said something like this on the tech tour a couple of years ago and I'm not in a told you so way, but like it, it was always sort of my experience that in general, it was never easier to raise your first fund, but it was also never harder to raise your second fund. In other right. words, there were so many LPs willing to bet on emerging managers. And that's one of the fundamental things that drove the explosion of micro funds and stuff like that over the last 10 or 15 years. But if you really think about it, like we were bound for a, you know, a cyclical, all markets are cyclical. So all these first time funds hit, everybody raised money. Lots of companies got funded. You and I have talked about like the fact that there are some companies that got funded in the last two or three years that probably would not have ordinarily been funded and the gravy train stopped. And so now a lot of those GPs are in this weird spot where they're coming up on that point in their career where they need to raise a fund too. There's no performance of fund one. God forbid they were also in one of those ugly deals that got a lot of bad press. Right. And now it's like, hmm, hey, so uh, what's the career transition out of this? (laughs) Because it's... How do you save face? Yeah, I mean, they, they could, at this point, they could be, they could have a fund that's completely buried, you know, either A, waiting for long exits or B, you know, no shot of, of, of upside and they're just living off the fees. Most are, right? Most, I mean, you know, you know the numbers, like most funds, mm-hmm. even in good times are not going to make any money. So just imagine how bad it is now. <laughs> right. And so you got to deal with your lack of performance, possible PR hit that the LPs don't like. And now the LPs can make more money and safer asset classes, at least for the time being. (laughs) Like it's the, I don't know, is there such a thing as like a three headed black swan? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think like there's no question you've got, you know, along with the, 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 the string of write downs and failures, you've got this, you know, all this impact from more stable investment classes producing reasonable returns, you know, higher interest rates, stuff like that. So it's, it's definitely a very, very tricky environment. I mean, I was having this conversation with somebody who I consider them a really good friend and like I, you know, they were pitching me on something that was a little bit out of our wheelhouse. I could, I could see a time where we would have more seriously considered it. I'm not saying we would have definitely invested in it, but there was a time where we would have more seriously considered it. But given where we stand right now, you know, with interest rates where they are, we, we can make a good deal of money doing nothing. And so things that are less our comfort zone have to have even higher potential returns for us to want to take a chance on them. Exactly. And I know this isn't maybe part of the topic, but I'm going to just throw it out there anyway. You know, the 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 investor group that's going to get hurt, I think, the most through this whole process is going to be angels, unsophisticated angels. I don't know what your experience has been, but, you know, for, for the founders that I might be taking investor meetings with and stuff like that, you know, if I have to give them that hard advice of like, look, I just, it's not going to fit my portfolio and hey, I, I just don't see how this is going to like work for you on the, on the larger venture side. Some of those founders are actually turning right back around and targeting local angels, local friends and family and just getting the deal done. But there's like, I just, again, I might be wrong, but like, there's, I just don't see anything on the other side of that bridge. You know, and like, and it's, it's those individual unsophisticated angels that have been convinced to take these bets like I'm trying not to name names, you know, just to like, sure. not, but no, like just the other day I talked to a founder in the Midwest who was making it to see it's a B2B piece of software. 
very typical B2B model. In this case, it's like a healthcare niche thing. And, and the idea is, you know, that, that the, you know, his customer is, you know, doctors and practice owners and stuff like that. And the problem is that like the target market he's going after is just not venture scale, you know, right. and, and the price point that is justified by the product and, and like the little value it provides doesn't, you know, he'd need, he'd need thousands of customers just to cover the costs of the four or five engineers he's got. He, he has not been able to raise money from the coasts. He approached me and a couple other angel angels to to invest, and I, I can't speak for the other angels, but for me, I was like, "Look, I, I I love. I think you're a good guy. I think your team's smart, but I just I, I just don't see the other. I don't see a there there. And then just out of you know, so we left on good terms. And 30 days later, you know, and then you know, he did the obligatory, "Hey, can I put you on my investor update list?" And like, yeah, yeah, sure. So sure enough, 30 or 60 days later, I get one of these like investor updates or, you know, industry updates or whatever you call them. And he's like, yeah, happy to explain or, you know, announce we closed $400,000 from, you know, wow. friends and family and and uh, a couple local angels. And this is a city that was on a tech tour stop. So good sized city, but not very active angel group and stuff like that. So anyway, but like, I, I, I you know, it's not my place to say anything, but. I kind of feel bad for those local angels because they really took a highly, highly speculative bet. Just Googling some of those angels, none of them have any industry experience in this particular industry. Mm. Yeah, they're like oil mm. and gas people and, and, you know, stuff like that. Like, it's not even like there's a doctor in the deal, you know, that sort of thing. And I think that happens a lot. I think it happens more than people admit right now is that like, you know, founders are hustling hard and doing what they have to do because that's probably what they're told to do and you know, it's the unsophisticated angels that probably get burned in the long run, but who knows? Maybe, maybe there's going to be like one big winner out of something like that. And then people like rub it in my face. I have no idea, but you know, for a different, like just, we'll do this at a, on a different episode at some point. But like the thing that you, I don't know if you remember, but like during the tech tour, the thing I would always tell local investors was like, look, if you're going to play the venture game, it's not a geographically bound game. You, you, you could invest in right. the most badass company in Kearney, Nebraska, you know, and it might factually be the highest growth company in Kearney, Nebraska. I'm picking on them. That's a good city, but whatever. But if if the next competitor for that company is in Orlando, Florida and growing 100x faster, you've just lost all the money. Like they're, they're, you're not getting your money back. There's just no way. It's, it's just kind of hard to watch sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you talked about about geographical boundaries on the tech tour a lot, and I think it was an incredibly smart thing. And you you touched on something else earlier that I want to pin as well, and I, and we can we can talk about your your food delivery habits. You know, you, you mentioned about entry point and venture scale returns and stuff like that. And I think you know one of the things I think that's interesting that isn't necessarily being talked about out loud a whole lot right now, but I think is a reality of some of the pressure that's out there. It's one of the reasons why we've said no to a couple of deals recently. So like with these write downs that are happening now, where companies that you thought were worth, like we had a company in our portfolio that we thought was worth in the low billions, you know, call it five, six billion. And, and it, it's ultimately got written down to something in like the one and a half or $2 billion range. And, you know, like lots of people who are listening now are like, oh, it's the one and a half to two billion. That's still really awesome. And and you're you're not wrong. But when when the top compresses, everything, everything else below it obviously compresses as well. And so what you start to get is, you know, it starts to become harder and harder to look at companies and say, yeah, if everything went perfect, that company could exit for a billion dollars or 500 million or a hundred million in various industries. And so like there's this entry point of like you like to say on the tech tour about how, you know, eight out of every 10 companies goes to zero and you kind of get your money back on number nine and then you make your money on number 10. And so number 10 is to make up. Yeah, right. if you're lucky. And number 10 is the one that has to make, make up for the other nine. So like 10 X 
when you consider time value money, is a losing proposition for, for venture investors. And so we need 100x exits to, you know, to have the, the, the desire to want to do this. There's got to yep. be some brass ring. And so two things. First off, you know, when the, when the total value that something could exit for starts to come down because there's compression on valuations, that, that makes it harder to get to your 100x. And then I still think valuations, like entry points are still high. Like I, I got pitched one the other day that was in the teens for what the current price was on the round and they hadn't launched yet. They're getting ready to. And it's like, like they, they might be worth that. To be clear, like I, it's not an area of expertise, this one specifically. But from an entry point standpoint, now if I want a 100x return on that, do I think they can be a billion dollar company? And the answer is like I don't based on the current you know economic climate. And so it's harder for us to invest. If that number was five, six, seven million entry point and there wasn't as much compression on the stuff at the top, now I've got lots more room. But everything's getting pressed from both sides, in my opinion, making it a lot tougher to see these massive exit scenarios that that sort of help make up for the failures when you're when you're betting on angel and venture style investing. I don't know if there's a question in there, but I agree with all that. <laughs> no, it wasn't a question. It was just more what I'm seeing. Like as I like as I pencil deals, it's harder and harder to pencil deals right now and make them feel good. And I've always been a little bit of a pessimist. My my partner Russell is more the optimist when it comes to putting these deals together. But I think even he's finding it hard to pencil some deals that might have otherwise worked in the past. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the unspoken, and again, maybe a different episode, but the the hard, the really hard part about these, these higher valuation entry points is that like, it kind of opens this can of worms where we got to get the return somehow, you know, like, like just high level napkin math here. You basically want to, you basically want to aim for, let's just say you're going to make 10 bets. You need to aim for 10 bets that could each individually return hundred X just napkin math, because you know, eight of them or nine of them are going to fail. So that if that 10th one hits mm-hmm. and you'd have no idea which one of it, of those 10 it will be, but if one of those 10 hits, it would not only make back the money, but get you the rate of return that you need for the risk that you took on for that 10, 11 year span, you know? And, and I think like this, these higher entry points that have been like, I think just, they've just stuck around a little longer than they need to right now. They're opening up this extra can of worms of like, what extra terms should we put in there to protect ourselves? Like, is it, right. is it, liquidation preferences and all that. And it's like, oh God, I don't want to be known for that. But I don't know. People listening to this are probably like, oh, look, investor problems. Oh, how hard is it to be you? You know, and, and it's like, <laughs> but if you can kind of put that sort of cynicism aside, the fact is, is like people think that investing is about feelings and conviction and all that. And, and that, those are things you can say when you're looking backwards in the moment. There's no, I just don't think there's like, conviction in the moment where you're, you're, you're betting on racehorses. I mean, this is investing is, what is it? This is like, I, I used to say this on the tech world. Like, investing is the last legal way to make a ton of money. It, it's basically like legalized gambling. So yeah, look, let's, I mean, let's, let's, let's point out the obvious. If it's harder for investors to invest, it's one less avenue for an entrepreneur to get their company sold because they don't, it's harder for them to get capital if they need capital. You know, yeah. Forces more people down the path of bootstrapping. Man, you know, my my napkin statement or back of the napkin advice to people is, is like, look, you know, for founders, build a, you don't need to be a billion dollar company. Like that should no. not be the goal. The only people that need billion dollar exits are billion dollar fund managers. What what you really need to do is like build a viable business in a market that can support an exit between 20 million and 200 million, somewhere in there. 
Like that's mm-hmm. where, if you look at the bell curve of, uh, or the distribution of exits in this country over the last 10, 20 years, it's a bell curve where, you know, it starts rising. The number of exits that occur above 20 million starts rising mm-hmm. and then it drops back down on the other side of the bell curve at about 200. Anything beyond that, you're really getting into like fewer and fewer potential acquirers, IPO being the only way out, that sort of thing. Yep. If you end up in a market where the ultimate exit could be 20, 30, 40 million, that still may not be investor viable, but you will do very well as an individual if mm, you can bootstrap yeah, that. 100%. And on the flip side, yeah. So anyway, but nobody's really wanting to talk about that, right? Because it's like sexy to think about Shark Tank and whatever. And anyway. Yeah. The vast majority of successful exits, to your point, are much smaller exits or they're not exits at all. They're, you know, they're folks who are, you know, running a, a profitable company of their own that throws off enough cash for them to take care of their family and kids. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'd almost rather you do that than take on the additional burden of, a, you know, investors and stuff like that. So. All right, let's talk about your food purchasing habits, my friend. So we, we you, you learned something. I did not know I was going to strike a curve, uh, like a, a nerve with you there. <laughs> I got to tell you, I, the, I, I unfortunately am very irrationally obsessed with the third party delivery companies, DoorDash, you breeds those guys. And I, I'm, I'm trying to be a little careful because there's some stuff in our contracts that may or may not be um, covered by agreements where I'm not supposed to talk about the, the, the financial aspects of stuff. But the things I can tell you for unequivocally, you know, the, the way this discussion, this discussion came up because we were talking about, you know, your family with COVID and ordering and food and stuff like that. Then, you, you know, I, I'm already fully on notice that any text message at any time of mine can be screenshotted and tweeted by Paul saying, so it keeps me, <laughs> keeps me honest. Yeah, yeah. But we were talking about DoorDash New Breeds and, and my very strong feelings about them. And, and there was something that I, I think you learned that I think most people don't know, like I think most people in this world of third party delivery companies, and, and the reason why we want to talk about this is because there's an insane, insanely interesting part here about the business themselves and why they would want to pay to do this thing. So your options typically in, you know, in your world were order from Uber Eats or DoorDash or come pick the food up at a, at a restaurant. In this example, we were actually talking about five guys, the restaurants that we're involved in. And I mentioned to you on, on Twitter last night that that you could actually order from our website and get that order delivered and even potentially buy the same driver that might have delivered it if you were going to use one of those other platforms because we have direct relationships with those platforms as well to deliver our orders. So first off, I would say just from a consumer-facing standpoint, knowing that you can pay less money in order for me, it's, it's definitely something for folks to consider. But setting that part aside for a second, you know, I, I mentioned something to you in pre-show which sort of like had you raise your eyebrows, which was, that it might actually cost me more money to tell you to buy from my platform, but I, I actually prefer it. And what I mean by that is we pay a flat fee to the driver to deliver that order. And let's just call, you know, let's, let's say the fee is somewhere between 5 and $10 to deliver your food. Well, if you order the bare minimum, I think we have a $15 minimum order. If you ordered $15 worth of food from me, that fee could be 50 or 60% of what you paid. And so I would clearly lose money on that transaction. In the aggregate, the fees obviously tend to be less than that because people do order more. But the interesting thing from our standpoint, and this, I think this applies to lots of entrepreneurs out there, the reason why I like to encourage people to come to our platform is, as you well know, like we're a premium burger product. We like to take good care of our customers. When you order through DoorDash and Uber, I have no idea who you are. I can't fix anything when your order's wrong. I, I have no control. And if you order for me directly and something goes wrong, I can rescue the I can rescue it. And so 
we're actually in the process of trying to drive more customers to our platforms to to continue to have that individual relationship with the customer, be able to market to them directly and serve them directly. And I've been babbling for a little bit, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop for a second. I want to be respectful of anything you can't talk about, but here, so, okay, so I was giving you a hard time on Twitter. And then when you when you then said, oh, you could do it through the website, I went to the website. I was like, oh. So so I had two thoughts after I after I looked at that and it's, it wasn't appropriate mm-hmm. for Twitter. So here we're going to talk about it instead. Like, first off, I didn't even know that this was an option. Like, right. I, uh, you know, when I got to the website, I was like, oh, man, I thought I was going to get some janky delivery experience. But actually, it looked native on the website. I put in my mm-hmm. address. It like I didn't have yep. to pick a location. It just made it easy. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, man, I didn't even know this existed. Did I miss an ad somewhere? Are they even talking about this? Like, would it have been on the receipt of a previous order or something? I don't know. But I was like, man, I didn't even know this existed. The the second thing I was thinking about was, is that like, let's assume I did know that this existed. For me as a consumer, most consumers are super lazy. I'm surprised that like whatever tool you guys use here requires me to create another account there and all that. Like, just give me the ability to log in with Google or Facebook or whatever. Like, like, I don't want to have to manage 17 different logins and all that. So it's like, Again, I'm not trying to give you advice here, but just as I think about it, I'm, no, I'm, I'm thinking no. like, you know, I'm thinking here like, A, I didn't know this existed. B, uh, the idea of creating yet one more account or whatever and having to remember the password and, and all that stuff is like annoying. It's like, man, that login where it says create, actually, I just pulled it up as well. So like when I want to sign up, the only options you guys give me and whatever, maybe it's the vendor that you use or whatever. First name, last name, email, phone number, password, confirm password. Very standard login. But your customer, I imagine, is my age or younger, I would think. Like on the whole, like I'm 42. I imagine your average customer is like my age or younger, I'm guessing. That login for... They'll probably actually lean a little bit older just based on the the, the lack of marketing the brand does. But, but the, you know, they're not, yeah. they're not significantly older than you. I'm just surprised that like... Like there was this friction point where I was like, man, I got to like create a mm-hmm. login and then I got to worry about data breaches and stuff. Like give me OAuth, yep. just let me log in with Google or I was using my iPhone. So let me log in with Apple ID or whatever. And then you yeah. pull all my data from the account, which is what like everybody else yeah. does. So let me pause. Well, there. it's funny because we were actually having a discussion on a digital task force call this morning and I pulled up an old list and said to somebody because we were having conversations about it. And on the first page of this list, these were prioritizations for the new version of the app that was released last year. And on the first page, there are three items that are currently listed 13, 14, and 15. SSO with Apple, yep. SSO with Google, mm-hmm. SSO with Facebook. Mm-hmm. And they are, they're estimated as like big lifts for us to accomplish. And the priority is listed as medium. And I would say that I agree with you that this should be a higher priority for us to make it easier for people. Like if we want people to, to be on our platform ordering food, we should make it easy as possible for them to do it. Not to you had another question there. You said there were two things there. Two, uh, OAuth and what was the other thing? Oh, just awareness. You know, just knowing that this was we've even done, an we've option. We've done a really bad job with awareness on this and we need to do a better job of it. We need to, we need to make sure the customers understand that the, the food is cheaper and the service is better coming from us. But let me just, I'm going to say something. It's a short thing. I'm going to say it. And yes. Then happy, to answer, happy to answer more questions, but I'm going to plant a flag. The future of delivery is truly independent drivers. I firmly believe that with all the legislation, all the gooey mess of all of this, it's going to like, there's going to be too much friction at some point. And I don't see, I generally think that as restaurants, the quicker we can get to independent direct relationships with the drivers, the better it will be for everyone involved. 
except for DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats. And it might actually end up being okay for them from a marketing standpoint where they just focus on marketing. But clearly it will be better for everyone else in the ecosystem, in my opinion. I think that's a, I think that is, your your prediction is probably correct. It's just sort of inevitable. Like at some point, if you don't mind me, you can take a pass on this question if you can't yeah. answer it. But that, that whole delivery app or whatever in, on fiveguys.com, did you guys build that in-house or is that a third-party tool? It was built for us by an agency. Okay. So you own the code and stuff like that. At some point, you guys or somebody is going to attach a driver network to this thing. Somebody's going to do it. There is one company that's already out there doing it that we're, we want to start testing with. But, but there are all these variables here. And I think... Ultimately, what we're looking at is, I think it's really interesting ecosystem when you talk about like how things can change. Before COVID, Five Guys had this very slow march to third-party delivery because it was really anathema to what Five Guys is because our food doesn't travel well. So like delivery was already like, you know, like how's your milkshake going to taste after 45 minutes in yeah. somebody's car? How's the yeah. french fries going to taste? Right. Like it just is what it is. It's not, right. a, it's, our food does not travel well. COVID accelerated that and it rapidly accelerated it. And then all of a sudden it was like, okay, delivery is ubiquitous. But we never really talked about like, well, what does the customer think? What does the customer want? All of these things. What do the drivers think? What do the drivers want? And now it's like there's this battle out there where because of some of the transparency that the platforms are putting out there, you have drivers who are like reverse engineering when they get a bid for an order. So if like you're a driver and you're going to pick up a food order from my restaurant and deliver it to somebody's house, the bid comes with the price. And you sort of like, you can kind of reverse engineer the price to know what tip the person is giving you. And you can decide not to take the order because they gave you a crappy tip. Right. And it's like, wow, that's... And it's like, I have two schools of thought here. The fact that this person is is like, the fact that people have to like outbid each other on the size of the tip to get priority for their food delivery is so anathema to me. Like it's, it's so... It's nails on a chalkboard for me. On the flip side, if I'm a driver... Like, do I really want to know? I want to know how much I'm going to get paid before I do the job. And in the middle are these companies, you know, DoorDash, Ubreeds, Grubhub, all these guys, like trying to like pull all these strings together. And I just feel like that snaps at some point. Yeah, I think this is really fascinating. I have a lot of thoughts. I just don't want to like cross any lines here. But but I think that like the now, see, I, again, I admit my fault or whatever, right? But I think I'm an average consumer. If we ran a poll on the listeners of this podcast, I think most people would side with me on this. Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't know it existed. But once I did know it was existed, I was like, oh, okay, like, this is cool. I, I could do this. And here's, here's my bet. Whatever that list of features you guys have that you're debating or whatever, once you get past whatever number 13, 14, 15 were in terms of SSO, I think you're going to start to just rip ideas from the DTC world and start to incentivize signups on this. I, I guarantee you at some point, the receipts that you guys generate in store when somebody's in there is going to say something like, claim your $10 credit or $5 credit by si creating your five guys account, you know, and there's a little QR code on there, boom. And the minute they do that, you're like, here's the thing, you're going to pay for my data one way or the other at some point. So you might as well just like let me, like just give me the $5 to spend right inside your location in exchange for me hitting the button on my Apple phone and then it gives you my full name. It tells you, you know, have you ever noticed this? You ever use Apple Pay, by the way? I do. You know, Apple Not Pay, ton, when, but I do. When that, pay, when that little screen scrolls up from the bottom, it, it's showing you like what your address is. It's telling you what it's about to share with the account that you just set up, whether it's Apple ID mm. or Apple Pay that you right. used. So right. you can pull all that data with like one click. 
And that mm-hmm. all of a sudden is where I think I've, we've kind of glanced on and off this topic over the last couple, you know, in previous episodes, but I think that's super exciting. This idea that you guys would start to get lots of detailed demographics. And then if you want to get really fancy about it, you could start to do location pings and all sorts of stuff like, hey, enable location sharing or whatever. And then you guys are sending push notifications to me to have my... my That stuff is happening. That stuff is happening. I don't know if you remember. Do you guys eat at Chipotle at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, do you remember when they when they launched Queso? It was like pandemic time. I don't remember, but I, I know that they have Queso. Right. So in the beginning, when they launched Queso, this is how they launched Queso. Chipotle now has Queso, blah, 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 exclusive only on our app. And that was how nah, you could order there you, go. you couldn't, nah, you couldn't order smart. from DoorDash or Uber Eats. I yeah. believe Chick-fil-A has done this with special flavors of milkshakes and stuff like that as well. But like so smart. There, are a number of diff- there are a number of different strategies for this. And it's just interesting to watch all the stuff in the ecosystem because to your point, it's a fight over customers. It's a fight over information. And it's, it's wait for it. It's one of Paul Singh's favorite phrases from, from the tech tour. And I, I, it, it will, it will all ultimately be where we pin the episode this week. It is the intersection between online and offline. Brick and mortar restaurants using online technology to bring in customers. Yeah. Younger Paul is, was way ahead of his years in wisdom. You know, what more can I add to younger Paul? <laughs> I don't know, but there's, there's definitely more gray underneath your chin <laughs> today right. than the first time I heard you use that phrase. Well, that's what 99 kids will do to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, man, I, I hope we can talk about this more often too, because I think it's really, really fascinating. And I think that, you know, you guys talking about it and doing stuff about it, like it's the kind of stuff that nobody ever sees. Like if I, as a five guys customer, never see more than the activity that, that occurs in the local five guys franchise, it's like three miles from my house. Right. And it's cool to see this other side of it, which is like talking about, you know, Hey, what's, do we give them five bucks or do we give them a large fry for the free account? Great question. And I can't wait to, I can't wait to start answering it in different ways. All right. I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll stop. No, no. It's like, no, it's an interesting <laughs> one because five guys, because I mean, let, let me ask you the question. When was the last time you used a coupon for five guys? I don't think I've ever used a coupon for five guys. I don't associate five guys with coupons. Right. We don't have them. Right. So like we, the, the, the number of bullets in our gun is significantly limited on how we're going to do this. So it's going to be interesting to see because we don't coupon our food. So getting you to to want to be a part of the ad is a part of the app is going to be it's going to be an interesting right. like I think we're going to have to do a lot of things to smooth the process like SSO and OAuth are going to be huge for us because we're not going to hand out free burgers and fries to everyone so I think we have to make it ridiculously easy for customers to sign on because we're already going to make it harder for them in other areas we're not going to give them the here's your free meal for signing up for the app maybe free isn't the right I mean again I'm going long but like maybe free free is definitely not in your all's brand so it's not even worth bringing that up. But, but maybe it's more about like, you know, you said something earlier about it not traveling well. That's absolutely true. In fact, I don't take right. five guys out. I always eat it there. Like right. I'll, I'll park the car and hang out there for 20 minutes and just eat rather than like deal with moving it around. Do you guys use the Instacart app? locally i haven't used it in a while I, I use i use it when i go to, i use it well i haven't used it lately at disney but typically my instacart stuff is like usually it used to be when i would land at disney i place instacart ad to have my groceries delivered to my hotel room so we use instacart probably twice a week for for grocery pickups it's because you know you probably know this area the boys school is right down there on route seven kind of near mm-hmm. you know route seven and uh loudon county parkway and then there's a Wegmans a little further down, a further west right there in Leesburg, yep. right right past Belmont Ridge. So I shop at that Wegmans myself. There you go. So usually what I'll do is like, I'll go scoop the boys up from school or grab Eva, whatever. And then that Wegmans is sort of right there on the route home for me. 
And more often than not, just because I got all the kids in the car, it's usually 4, 4.30 in the afternoon. I'm not going to get them out of the car. You know, I'll put in a pickup order, a curbside. My favorite feature on the Instacart app, the one thing that I that I finally like justifies the fact that we pay for Instacart is I can hit a little button that says I'm on my way. It enables location sharing and everything's ready. Like that, I just, mm. they know I'm coming. And as soon as I roll up, they're already outside with my name, boom, and I'm gone. And to your point, it's like, you're talking about it not traveling well. We're all going to sit there anyway. The value prop to me is not free because that's not what I associate you guys with. You know, my order is hot and ready when I get there. And you, you know, I traded you my location to get that. That could be kind of cool. You know, I'm I got to get- make you, I am literally going to make your day live here on the air. <laughs> if you order from five guys, there is an option when you place the order to let us track you from the time you place the order until you pick it up and we will fire your french fries when you're three minutes from the stores that technology exists today in the current version and you can't get that current version wow so next time you're in a five guys look at when you walk up to the counter look at the so you know the table where we make the burgers yeah so at the end of that table you'll see a white tablet facing away from you that white tablet has all of our orders on the screen and so when you when when paul s is on the screen It'll be, I forget what color. I think it's just black and white. And then when you're within three minutes, it'll start flashing. I think it flashes purple. And then when you're there, it turns green. And so that's enabled by you opting in on your device to say, yes, I want to be tracked. And so we'll track your session from the time you place the order until the time you get to the store and you'll, you'll walk in. And if we do it right, your food is ready and those fries just came out. See, that is so cool, man. Like separate discussion for later, but like if, and I mean this with all the respect in the world, Ed, like from, from as a customer and like, I feel like I know you pretty well, even as your friend and, and whatever, I had no idea you guys were doing this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we it's need, like, we, we, that, that's our message to people is like, Hey, get hotter, faster, fresher food, cheaper by boom, hit our app. Yeah. So that's amazing. I had like no idea. That's awesome. It's awesome. Yep. I love it. I'm here for you, man. I'm here for you. Ooh, learned something new today. All right. Where's, uh, what, what's my commission on this one? Do I really, you know, <laughs> <laughs> always, always looking for the angle every single time. Blood sucking capitalist for the angle. Yep, yep. I may not, I may not be a full-time truck driver anymore, but I'm still blood sucking capitalist. Thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs>Oh, man. All right. Well, any travels? Oh, you're going to Europe. I got to go pack the bag, man. By the time we talk again, I will be... uh, Woe is me. uh, I'll be back from Lisbon. Yeah, I know. Tough one, man. I got to go to Lisbon for a week. Oh, it's so hard for you. So hard for you. Yeah. Yeah, you must really really have pity (laughs) on me. Oh, man. You're going to eat like a king. I'm jealous. I'm going to eat like a king. There'll be pasta nada in my future. And then Cervecerio Romero is my favorite seafood joint. So I'm hoping for that, too. I love it. Well, I'm going to live vicariously through you. I hope you have hit the maximum number of positive COVID tests that you will have that this fine the, week. That is the idea. Yes. Yeah. All right, man. Well, safe travels. Looking forward to seeing you soon. All right, man. Talk to you. The preceding was produced in association with Crooked Path Productions.